Kia ora, hello and welcome to the breakdown. We are close. We are getting closer. Tomorrow night, 11.59, we head down to level two. It's been announced. Super Rugby Aotearoa is on its way back. Mills, Muliaina, Sir John Kerwin, Bernadine Oliver Kirby wearing yellow. Mills, how stoked are you? We are not too far away from seeing some rugby once again. Oh, Goldie, I can't wait. And I can tell by the look on the faces of the other two, they're, they're bursting at the bits to get out there and see some Super Rugby Aotearoa. So I'm looking forward to it finally. There's a bit of light at the end of the tunnel, guys. What about this? We love our derbies. And now we've got one every weekend. <laughs> the Blues. The Blues coming back. The Blues coming back. Bernie, you've got all the details. What does it look like? After 58 days of no rugby, we know we've only got 31 more days before Super Rugby roars back into life. But it is a domesticated version. And that's not all bad. We love a good derby, don't we? So Super Rugby Aotearoa kicks off next month. And of course, it's our five teams. It's the Crusaders, the Chiefs, the Hurricanes, the Highlanders, and the Blues. And this is how it's all going to work. They'll have eight matches each. So it's a 10-week competition with home and away format. It's going to be closed stadia, so no crowds as yet. Uh, each weekend, there's going to be a Saturday game at five past five and a Sunday afternoon game at five past three. So mark this in your diary. The very first game is Saturday, June the 13th. Highlanders versus the Chiefs in Dunedin. That's an evening game. Then on Sunday, the 14th of June, the Blues versus the Hurricanes in Auckland. We can't say Eden Park. It's in Auckland for the afternoon game. The full draw is up online at superrugby.co.nz. And of course, those matches live and exclusive on Sky Sport. Now, Mitre 10, that will commence September 11th. It is an amended competition, so the details of that still being worked through. Same with Farah Palmer Cup. And of course, the Black Ferns have got their World Cup next year. The other thing that people are wondering about, the All Blacks, the international season. July, I'm thinking, just a little ambitious at this stage. Nice thought, but just a wee bit too ambitious. When things kick off, though, JK Mills, what is it we want to see from these teams? The fact this is foreign territory. They've been training at home on their own, in their own bubbles. All of a sudden, it's going to be game on in a month's time. How much is this going to be about how quickly these teams can come together and prepare? Well, firstly, a competition that's so easy to understand. There's none home semis, home and you get those points. And it's just it's just easy for me to work out, Goldie. I can just You're a simple man sometimes, just, JK. Exactly. I don't have to think too hard about home semis and shit. It's just all on. <laughs> but I think the biggest thing for me is, you know, often we've spoken about the players saying that the derbies are the hardest things to deal with. So I'm really sort of looking forward to that intensity and then who's going to maintain that over the over the full period. But I just think it's really exciting. I just think it's simple. We love it. And the Blues are back. Well, in 2014, New Zealand Rugby had a new chairman come on board. And Brent Impey was that man. And Brent joins us on the show tonight. And I imagine there's been no more difficult time to be involved with rugby in New Zealand. But good news announced yesterday. We are heading towards level two. And there is going to be professional rugby. Are you excited to see that part of the game get back into action once again, Brent? Oh, absolutely, Jeff. Um, it's, it has been a very tough time. I mean, this, this is unprecedented in what's happened, uh, but it's great that we've got rugby back on from uh, the 13th of June. Couldn't be better news. Brent, um, it's been an interesting time because I think there was, there's been two major issues um, that have come up really pre-COVID. So one thing I wanted to ask you was, we want to change um, here at the breakdown at World Rugby. New Zealand didn't vote for Bill. I was personally disappointed because I think Bill had promised us the world and then given us an atlas, so really done nothing in four years. Are you worried that that's not going to change in the next four years? He comes straight out and says, you know, Six Nations isn't going to change, which makes it sort of smell a bit. I mean, is our relationship a little bit rough over there at the moment? I think relationships are fine, JK. Uh, we had discussions with Bill before the vote. Uh, he tried in a conversation with Mark and I to convince us that to go back to the New Zealand board to get uh, approval to vote for him. We didn't. Uh, we supported Gus and we're very open with that along with our Sanzar partners. 
the election's over. As soon as it was as over, um, I contacted Bill and said, you've won, and uh, it's now our job to uh, get in and support you. But there are conditions attached to it. Uh, we believe that uh, there needs to be substantial governance change. There needs to be change in the eligibility rules. We need to get this nation's championship concept uh, up and away. Emerging nations need to be encouraged. And, uh, and some of the, the, the rule changes also need to, uh, to be implemented. So from our point of view, uh, the, the ball is now in, in Bill's court. I don't think there's a, a relationship issue. Uh, we were very upfront with our position and um, he knows exactly where we stand on it. Brent, there's a number of things that you've talked about already, the fact that exploring maybe the opportunities to negotiate tours once again. I mean, are there conversations you are now having, given this result, in different marketplaces, trying to forge different relationships to create new opportunities, uh, maybe grow the professional game in different parts of the world? Oh, absolutely. And it's not, it's not just the professional uh, men's game, it's the women's game as well. We're, um, we're, we're looking at all sorts of, of opportunities that, that, are, that are opening up. I mean, our criticism of um, world rugby was that nothing had really happened uh, for such a long time. That's why we supported, we supported Gus. Uh, and yes, um, uh, the, the, I think if you look at COVID, um, it applies the same in so many businesses. It's, it's a total reset. Whatever happened in the past uh, may not apply in the future. So the answer is we're open to it all. And do you think Bill is seriously going to listen and, and make a reset? Because our game needs change. You know that. I know that. But do you think he's going to do that? Or it's just going to be the same old, same old? Well, we have certainly uh, put him on notice that we uh, expect change. And he's, he's made the right noises, JK, about uh, coming to the party around all these things. If you have a look at his manifesto, a lot of what I just said um, for example, the growth of the women's game or, or uh, emerging countries, uh, eligibility, he said he will deal with. Um, he's now got to deliver. So uh, if he doesn't deliver, then that's a, uh, that's a whole new, new debate and uh, would certainly test the relevance of world rugby if nothing happens. Brent, given the impact that COVID has, has had, I mean, and we look at it across the globe, the fact that given a lot of unions are going to be going into recovery mode, does that affect that decision-making in the short term about the direction the world game can go? The fact that Six Nations, they need that competition. They need that revenue to drive their game. Are we going to have to wait because of that? We can't afford to wait because the game um, is in, in crisis and survival mode. It's in survival mode here just as much as it is uh, anywhere else. We're having to uh, make uh, cuts, which, which are, are, are very, very unfortunate. And so uh, we can't just afford to, to wait. Now is the time to, to take the action. Uh, for example, to make, um, uh, get a global season underway, to make sure that uh, test matches are meaningful, that sort of nation's championship idea where there are, are, are points for, for every game. So therefore to make things more attractive. Um, you've got to go back and say, well, what, what are the core things here? Well, the number one core is, is it's a game. And it's a game that um, has fans. And those fans, we either want them to turn up to the, to the, to the game or watch them on Sky TV. We've got to create, a, uh, we've got to create the best content we, we, we can. That means having the best players, making sure we have the, the right competitions. And then we've got to make sure that uh, we've got revenue in so that uh, the fans are going to want to come, the competitions uh, are going to be great. We can't afford just to muck around and see that um, uh, happen next year or the year after. It's got to happen now. I totally agree with that, you know, Brian. I think it's great that we are going to use this moment to, to pivot and make some change. I think one of the things that disillusioned me a wee bit during the voting process was, you know, two of the Pacific Islands deciding to, uh, you know, vote for Bill. And then there was some, some controversy about, well, where do they sit in the Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere? I always thought that the island nations really don't, uh, it's difficult because they don't bring too much to the commercial table, right, for, for rights and all that sort of stuff. So where do you see them in our game at Test Match Football and just continuing to, rather than use them for their players, actually celebrate and put them into something meaningful? It's a, it's a very, very big question, JK. Well, let's start with the World Rugby vote. Um, we supported uh, Fiji coming into the Nations Championship when that was discussed at World Rugby 18 months ago in Dublin. Fiji was in the room and I was uh, the speaker on behalf of the Sanzar countries supporting them. Um, it was blocked 
principally by the Celtic nations, yet Fiji and Samoa that would have benefited from that competition both went and voted for Bill for reasons you'll have to ask them. Um, I think that strategically they made an error. Now, I understand that um, from the island's point of view, they blame New Zealand and others a lot for taking their players, for not involving them in competitions. Um, you, go, you go back right to the days when you guys were playing around Super 10, when, when there was an island team in, et cetera. Um, and uh, it, it's, it, yes, there are things that you can understand that they are frustrated about. But the converse of it is um, who is responsible for, uh, for solving those problems? New Zealand Rugby is a members organisation. Our members are our provincial unions who in turn they're members of their clubs who in turn are the mums and dads who are watching this TV programme. It's unrealistic to expect New Zealand rugby to put its hand in its pocket because in the end it comes down to money and who's going to pay for the Pacific nations to be uh, in, these in these competitions. If it's, if it's to be New Zealand rugby, then um, we, we, we take that money away from supporting the club game, the provincial game, etc. There are other avenues uh, to explore. For example, both the Australian and New Zealand governments have Pacific reset budgets. What about uh, accessing that? I do find it uh, challenging that um, we have a bunch of journalists in New Zealand who are very much hand-wringers in, uh, in this area who expect that it's New Zealand rugby's responsibility to solve the problems of the Pacific. I get the moral argument, but the economic argument is, uh, is very challenging. Uh, on, the, um, on the subject of future competitions, yes, uh, uh, we would love to be able to create an environment where Pacifica players played in our, our professional competitions if we, can, if we can make it happen. And we're doing a lot of work to try and, and, and explore that as part of this reset. So Brent, are you talking about relationships there? You're talking about you know, who's going to work together. You've talked about and mentioned Sanzar. Where are our relationships right now with Australia, South Africa and Argentina in terms of looking forward and I suppose, uh, is there some concern about, I suppose, the uncertainty in Australia right now, the inability to get a broadcast deal together and around the direction of their game, given they have been a strong ally of ours and are our closest neighbours? And they remain strong allies. The four Senzai countries are, are very united, as seen by the vote and support for uh, Gus Pichot uh, a, couple of, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we see a lot of strength in the Sanzar Alliance. Um, and at this stage, we, we obviously want to continue with um, both a, a professional club rugby competition and the rugby championship. And if you look at the rugby championship, all but one World Cup winner since uh, the first one in 1987 has come from the Sanzar country. So let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here. Having said that, there are lots of challenges uh, around this. Um, in the post-COVID world, we don't know what... Um, the cost of air travel is going to be like, whether um, you can fly from uh, Auckland to Buenos Aires. And if you can, is it practical? How long are our, um, our borders going to be closed? Yes, there might be a, a trans-Tasman bubble, but is that going to extend to South Africa, Argentina, etc., cetera, uh, over the next 12 months, even 24 months? So we've got a lot of that um, stuff to, to work through, and we will. And there's a Sanzar meeting on the 19th of May in which we're going to be exploring this. And none of these options are, are easy. But um, as far as the alliance is concerned between the four countries, that's, that's tight. But the um, complexities and logistics around running what we've done in the past is certainly uh, up for debate. I think, Brad, the, the interesting thing for me is, is, for example, Bill comes straight out and says, we're not touching the Six Nations. And we don't want, to, we don't want him to touch it, but... He, not even considering changing the dates is frustrating. So my question is, do you think they really care in the Northern Hemisphere or has their game got enough private ownership, enough income for them to just go, well, you know, our poor cousins down south, we'll just see what happens. I actually think that's yesterday's thinking, JK, because we're in this post-COVID environment. I mean, their clubs are, uh, are under great financial pressure, uh, as, are the, as are the French and the, uh, the fallout from what we're uh, all experiencing right now is going to apply to, to everyone. Um, we, we're in a position where um, New Zealand has probably the biggest brand in, uh, in world rugby with the, with the All Blacks. Um, the, the, it would be matched by the Springboks. Uh, but um, uh, we, have a, we have a fair say in all of, all of this. We're not beholden 
to uh, to the north in this in this environment that we're going forward. We want to work with World Rugby. We have a very good relationship with some of uh, the unions, particularly the RFU, uh, in which uh, we've had a number of uh, really positive discussions and um, uh, and and there'll be there'll be good things come come out of out of all of that. So it's 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 not as easy just to say, oh, well, the North's got all the money and the South hasn't because we are in, as I said before, in a totally different world. And I think you've got to look at, look at it through that lens. Rumours coming out, of course, uh, the fact that we know in the Northern Hemisphere that they had done a significant deal with the Six Nations in terms of private equity and investment into their game. Rumours coming out that possibly New Zealand rugby are doing that in a United States um, a, a scenario or looking for those partnerships. Is that, are you chasing? Are we looking for private equity in our game? And what could that mean to New Zealand rugby? We're not chasing anything. We haven't got any agreements with uh, anybody. There's no money on the table. Um, we're, we're, not, we're not chasing anything. Our, our major priority right now is ensuring the uh, survival and uh, the growth that comes post-COVID for, uh, for New Zealand rugby. The, the question arises uh, in this area as to capital. Um, in order to run professional sport, you need um, equity, money, capital. Uh, into uh, into your game, so um, uh, we are open to to discussing all of this. But there's miles away from um, from anything that uh, uh, is 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 on the table. So um, yeah, it's it's pure speculation at this point, and is certainly not uh, the, not a priority. I mean, exciting times. Talking about you know uh, ten weeks of local derbies. I'm excited. Can't wait. Are we going to have? Are we going to show some courage and use this period coming out of COVID to try some stuff around what super might look like in the future? I mean, is this a neat opportunity just to take some risk? Yeah, I think it is. Um, if you're talking about um, things like the rules, I'm clearly the wrong person to uh, to talk to. Um, you'd be better interviewing yourself, JK. Um, but um, yes, I think in terms of trying things around, uh, particularly around our fans, the people, you know, let, let's try and, and, and give them what they want. Um, so uh, if, it's down, if it's down that sort of line, I'm, I'm very encouraging, although it's not my area of expertise, as you know. You've watched enough games and we could not have Sir John Cohen interviewing himself on this show. There, it's not long enough. For that, Brent. Look, a lot of people at home are going to be wondering about the community game, of course, because we, we know the impact it is having. And these are challenging times and a number of difficult decisions um, your board and Mark Robinson coming in as the CEO have had to make. What sort of assurances can you give them about the fact that the, the vision you have and the security of their rugby going forward, that just your, your average rugby player? Well, yes, um, we've been in very regular contact with... Um, the chairs and CEOs of all 26 uh, provincial unions. We have tried as part of the, um, this process to limit the cuts to uh, funding to provincial unions. They've, they've received um, less of cuts than any other part of it because, because the community game is just absolutely vital. So um, if we're gonna build this game back up, it needs to come from the mums and dads, the clubs, the schools, uh, and coming through, and that's that's really where the uh, the, the priority is from is from the board, and um, uh, we we absolutely have to. I mean, if if we don't, then uh, then we're on a we're on a slippery slope. So that's been a, a clean a clear focus and priority in our considerations. Are there some sacrifices that will have to be made, or in terms of our future going forward, in terms of an investment and. In and getting that balance right when we come out of the other side of this? Yes, well, well this, is a, this is a fairly big year, um, Goldie. We've got uh, the Players Collective coming up uh, end of this year. Uh, we've got to make sure we've got funds for our provinces, as I just spoke about uh, a few moments ago, um, and, uh, and to be able to kickstart uh, what we need to do um, going forward, whether it's internationally or domestically, etc. So, um, get through uh, this uh, crisis and those are the next things that are, are coming over the hill. There's a good chance then maybe are we going to see as the global marketplace going to, given all of your business acumen, all of your experience, do you see the player marketplace changing globally? Yes. Well, I think everything is going to change. I'm, I'm in the camp that says uh, no matter, not just rugby, right? Any, anything, 
that um, uh, you, you look at it um, post-COVID, it's going to be totally different. So yes, I do see the uh, global rugby market uh, changing. I mean, is, is the, are the English going to be able to sustain 12 clubs? Are those owners going to continue to lose pockets and pockets of money? Uh, the French have started to, to move towards uh, more local players rather than, than less imports. They're just the start. Um, and, and, and then, you, you know, you, you couple that with the, um, with the economic impact of this on, uh, on all countries that, that play our sport. And you, you, you're back to, back to a restart. So, you, so I come back to, um, uh, and to two things, really. The, the community game, which involves boys and girls and clubs and provinces, and the professional game, where the priorities are the bands, the competition, and they're making sure we've got uh, sufficient money into it to be able to fund it properly. Brent, for me, I mean, I'm really worried about our Australian brothers and sisters across the, the ditch. I know, hopefully... With our border controls, we might be able to play, you know, against Australia first. But they've got some challenges over there. I mean, is this going to be a, an important time for them to reset and start again? Yes, I mean, they, they are clearly going to, to do that. Um, we've been close to Australia, despite that the competition on the field. For example, the, the third Bledisloe, uh, which we've played for many years uh, against them. Um, and it's important for us that uh, rugby in Australia is, is strong. Uh, we, we all recognise that, um, but they, they face challenges and through the Sanzar connection, uh, we'll be um, trying to see what, um, what, what can be done uh, to, to help them. But it's, it's, you know, again, it's not as if New Zealand rugby can put its hand in its pocket and say, well, here, there, um, but are there other ways in which we can uh, assist um, uh, Rugby Australia? Brent, this has been fantastic. We really appreciate your time and giving us the insight and the information we need to know about, you know, some of the challenges and the directions and the conversations you have had, the fact that give us some hope that we are heading in the right direction. Uh, it looks as though by your wine cellar, because there's not much of a cellar behind you, it's been a difficult lockdown. You're a little bit light there, but we're, we're, on the, uh, we're coming out of the other side of it. I'm sure you're going to restock and look forward to what's going to be an exciting rugby season ahead of us. Yes, well, I know. Um, now that we're getting down to level two, I can go down to the uh, uh, local Waiheke wine shop and restock. So things are looking up. JK's going to look after. Don't you worry about that. Thanks very much, Brent. Appreciate it once again. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Bye. Yes, Super Rugby is back. It's Super Rugby Aotearoa. It is on June the 13th. Of course, the players will be back in action earlier on in the season. We asked them this very important question. What is the weirdest thing they have seen a teammate do? Weirdest thing I've seen a teammate do uh, on the field was Dylan Hunt when he got knocked out and he's slapping himself on the head to the ref like, I'm knocked out, I'm knocked out. <laughs> Ref's like, well, you're not. Ricky Ranger having a pre-game dart. <laughs> Ricky Riccatelli, we have our pre-workouts like in a container, lid was off. It was before the game or at half time, we just saw him pick it up and just go, I once saw uh, Shannon Fazell eating coffee and rice. He makes a bowl of rice, coffee, and just pours it on. Says, um, yeah, it gives him energy. Well, I've seen uh, Ash Dixon score a try uh, on the five metre line before. Um, that was pretty funny. Ash Dixon, rolling mall, thought he was scoring the try, but Best he dove down it. and scored it on the five metre line. Here we go, the trademark of North. Dumbest thing I've ever seen. I know Gareth Evans changes his boots at half time every game. Yeah, yeah pretty, he does it. It's pretty weird, eh? He changes it after the warm-up as well. Three pairs of boots per game. Yeah, three pairs of boots uh, Don't know why. Dalton Papali'i. He loves to sleepwalk. Weirdest thing I've ever seen a teammate do is probably spewing before the game. Mainly just because I'd never seen it before. Johan Bardou. You know, we're an hour out from kickoff. I've just got to the ground and he's just sitting there going... Bleh. I think it was Josh Honick in South Africa. We were playing uh, in Joburg and he just pulled his top back and just threw up <laughs> down his top. Sweet as, and I'm like, what about the rest of us? Like, what if we land on you? Or He's just like, <laughs> welcome back to Breakdown. Well, we all know the game musical chairs. The music plays, and when it stops, everyone scrambles for a seat. And if you don't have one, you're out of the game. Well, with Rugby Australia, there's circus music playing 
and no one wants the chairs. Now, Raylene Castle fell on his sword. She succumbed to the pressure and resigned as CEO of Rugby Australia. Well, Peter Wiggs, who was a new director on the board, lasted 37 days. He couldn't fast track his choice for CEO, so he threw the towel in. Step on up, Rob Clark. He is now the acting CEO for Rugby Australia while they undertake a three to six month process to find a new permanent CEO. So what is, is the mandate? What are the three key things that Clark wants to do? Well, number one, it's a no-brainer, finances. They need to sort that out and fast. Number two, launching a domestic competition. And number three on his list is competition structure for 2021, sorting something out for next year. Add to that the absolute debacle of the broadcast deal, or should I say a lack of one, Fox have been a great partner of Rugby Australia for 25 years. That's a quarter of a century of a relationship gone when Raylene Castle said she was going to open the bidding to other broadcasters. Well, Fox got sour about that. They took their toys away and said, no, we're not going to negotiate any further, leaving Optus another player in the field. Or were they? Raylene Castle seemed to think they were pretty close to securing a deal, but... Seems like it's not the case. Richard Bayliss, who's the head of sport for Optus, has said, I think speculation was out there, but to be honest, we weren't particularly close. He goes on to say, who knows what will happen in the future, but certainly in the short term, there's not much chance of adding any major Australian rights. Talk about creek and paddle, i.e. up one without one. Rugby Australia is now in the precarious position of not having a broadcast partner beyond 2020 and that is a very very bad place to be in and you've got to wonder whatever Fox was offering Railing Castle and Rugby Australia a few months ago now could be seems very very attractive does Optus even want to negotiate around the table at all or Rugby Australia just be left with some scraps not a great position to be in well, Mills, we know things are difficult across the ditch. I mean, reality is, what is it they can do in the short term? And what, what does the future hold for them? And how do they build those relationships back up with all of the partners involved? Well, I mean, God, they're going to need to. They're going to need to try. I, I know the broadcasting deal, they haven't got one on the table. And they, they might have to take up the scraps, unfortunately, given what's happened before this you know, COVID-19 situation. But the big thing for them is, you know, there's so much uncertainty. You know, they have to build those relationships um, you know, do they have to grovel? I'm, I'm not too sure, JK, but at the moment, they seemed a very, very far away from getting anything done. Well, it's interesting, wasn't it, that Brent Hinsby said, no, we probably can't have help financially, but, you know, any television deal needs something that people want to pay for, right? And if we could possibly bring them into our competition in some way, that'd be a bit of an enticer for the, for the TV uh, people, but I can't really see anything besides that. What do you do, Millsy? You go back to Randwick versus Manly. I mean, you know, we're excited about our competition because <laughs> we've got the best teams in the world playing against each other. But in Australia, they're going, oh, ho-hum. So well, I, I don't know what the answers are, but I think they're going to have to be pretty quick at coming up and maybe referring some of the payments for the television, give them a discount, build in a bit of a longer term, increasing every year, and then try and get the confidence back. Who knows? I wonder, Bernie, too, fact of the matter, I don't know if there's a massive marketplace for their players right now globally. Absolutely. You're going to find a lot of those Aussie players are going to chase the dollar and head north. The other thing, too, is that, you know, the broadcast deal is crucial to get their product out. If they haven't got that, the advertisers are gone. And remember, Rugby Union is not the number one, two, three, four, or perhaps even fifth most popular sport in Aussie. Crazy to think five years ago that they were in a Rugby World Cup final against the All Blacks and this is where they've managed to get themselves in regards to their game at home and now in jeopardy their game globally. Well, we know the challenges that are happening across the ditch. We know there is no change at World Rugby. We're going to go to the Northern Hemisphere and Stuart Barnes, former England player, great English commentator, understands this game I suppose, as well as anybody in Barnsley. Reality is Sir Bill Beaumont is, remains in charge, the chairman of World Rugby. Is this them heading in the right direction in the future? Um, instinctively, I would say no. Um, the very fact that I think Bill Beaumont doesn't think the Six Nations 
has to think about opening up is intrinsically wrong. You can't, you can't say we're a democratic sport and then six countries say, we've got a big TV deal, we've got a lot of money, we're not having you in or having you out. Um, so for that reason, I think uh, it's definitely wrong. Having said that, um, I know Gus Bishop, uh, he tied his campaign to this uh, phrase, global game. And I truly think um, even before coronavirus, uh, with the climate crisis that's around, I've looked at, uh, at your hemisphere in particular, uh, and I don't think that super rugby is sustainable. Now, world rugby use words like sustainable, like politicians use whatever word that suits them. They don't care about it. But to be seriously sustainable, we can't have a world where New Zealand are shocked flying to Argentina as they did a year or so ago, just coming straight back. This is not acceptable. And, and Super Rugby itself, I think two things. A, it just looks bad. B, and more importantly, it's just got too flabby. It's too big and it doesn't work. And I, I think with coronavirus, what's happened here? We can say, okay, we do need to tighten our borders. And I think we've got to stop talking about growing. It's a, you hear the word all the time, grow the game. We're not football, we're not basketball, and we don't have to be. We don't have to simplify the rules. What we have to do is make sure it's as good as it can be right now for those who play. And yes, uh, the Pacific Islands is very dear to the hearts of everyone in the rugby world because of what they have done. And we need to say, how can we make sure we don't have this sort of state of fast that we've had at times in, in, in Fiji in particular? Uh, but the key, I think, is for New Zealand. If I was a Kiwi, I would want a strong uh, provincial championship. I would want your old tournament back at its best. If I was an Australian, I would say, let's really focus not on trying to grow the game in Perth where it's failed or Victoria where it can't beat rules. Let's just get hard in Brizzy and Sydney, get our club rugby a very good standard and start getting that New South Wales, Queensland, rugby league rivalry back going, and maybe at some stage an Aussie New Zealand playoff, but not obsessed with travelling and spreading the word. Barnsley, the the issue that I have at the moment, it really feels like the Northern Hemisphere doesn't really care about the Southern Hemisphere as much. For example, Bill getting re-elected. We're not asking the Six Nations to change. We think it's a fantastic competition. But to come out and say it's not going to change dates or anything, we're not trying to take Christmas Day away. We just want to see things moved away. But yet, one day after the election, he goes, no, that's, that makes it, it sort of smells, Barnsley. Smells, mate. I think there's a, an imperial element to this, John. Um, I think Rugby Union came very much out of the empire and that's why as we know Australia and New Zealand and South Africa are there and as with the empire I think rugby thinks it's it's you know East India club is where things are still done and, and that's not good enough and, and over the last hundred years we've had times when France have lost their rag there uh, Italy's another issue altogether at the moment but before home countries, I think, do regard this as their own tournament, and they don't seem to understand that they're part of a larger sporting community. And if rugby, I won't use the word grow, but if rugby is to succeed, then the Six Nations has to say, if, you know, if the rugby championship making changes, we have to, we have to evolve. And the other thing I can't stand is the fact that, you know, Apart from introducing France in 1910 and Italy in 2000, the tournament hasn't changed. And there's a glorification in the fact it just doesn't change. And the world doesn't change for the sake of it. But sometimes it needs to evolve. And this is one of those times when the Six Nations needs to do that, just that. I'm not suggesting that you have automatic promotion relegation. I don't think that works. It has to be the right team. But I think there has to be a playoff so that, you know, I, also, I, I think it should be five nations. I think six is too much. It, there's just not the quality of competition. Um, but I think there has to be a, a promotion relegation issue uh, just for global democracy of the game. 
And I think there has to be, this is a time, I think, where if rugby's serious about being world rugby, and, and when it changed its name from International Rugby Board to World Rugby, it became like the Catholic Church sending out missionaries everywhere. And you got, the, you know, if you go to California, you got these old derelict missions everywhere. I don't want to see a world where uh, 20 years from now, we've got um, dilapidated rugby pitches and rusted posts. And that's what I fear by trying to spread the game to every country. Let's get it right in the, in the countries that love the game, that make it a big global sport, but not a football or a basketball. I, I, I was actually calling for tours because I think then it becomes more sustainable. It, it works better because from a, a fan's point of view, I recall the first time I saw New Zealand play in Cardiff uh, on, on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. It wasn't a, a full international, but it was a full All-Blacks team. But then about four years later, 77 or 78, uh, the All-Blacks came back again with Dave Loveridge and I was 15, 16, and, and they toured the UK and I saw every game they played in Wales and it inspired me. And if, if, if we produce a great team from... Wales or Ireland or England, I'd love to see them not going to Argentina for a game, but going and playing five matches, six games. And I think that's where the inspiration comes. And like you say, John, I get bored with a table, a championship every year. I think potentially it, it dilutes the World Cup. My question to you here is, though, is the fact how much of this is in some way the Northern Hemisphere protecting well and truly what it's got? It's, it's essentially traditional and it's essentially conservative and things that are traditional and conservative like to keep what they have. And this is, in this instance, they call it a great traditional tournament, and it is. But above and beyond that now, it's also, as you said, it's a great avenue to make a lot of money. And, and I, I just think we keep hearing about that, that well, there's this uh, analogy with coronavirus and war. You do get the sense, especially here in Britain, we just had VE Day and we like to look back and, and, and with that happening, there's all this talk about it's like a war. Boris Johnson keeps calling it a war, a war. And, and I just get the feeling right now that what we need at the, when this war comes out is a United Nations that functions. We never really had it. Rugby, it, it does need a world rugby but it doesn't have a world rugby. It has a world rugby that is so focused on finance that really it's lip service, I think. And you talk about a global reset there for me. Is that what you're saying? And, and you talk about the clubs in England, you talk about those in France. Are you getting the sense that the marketplace and what's actually happening in the global game and this where the players are moving around, that's not going to be as prevalent and maybe it's all going to come back just slightly so that all of a sudden that word... We hear it all the time that sustainability um, becomes more important than that word growth that you obviously yeah. don't necessarily agree with. The academies have been forgotten so often in England. And one of the things that for 25 years since I stopped playing, I've tried to say to uh, deaf ears in England, and that's New Zealand have been historically the dominant country from day one onwards, and they have through the professional era because the education and the coaching of players is good. And you keep looking at the wrong thing. You keep looking at the Crusaders and you keep looking at the Hurricanes, but you should be looking at the school system and what is coming through there. Our school system produces good test teams, but they're just because we're big and strong and there's a lot of us. They're not producing intelligent rugby players. Rugby is an intelligent game. And, and I think that if we go back to get our academies in a stronger position. If we look at our schooling in a better way and our junior rugby, and we think, how can we just get more intelligent rugby from an earlier age? That will make such a big difference in England in particular, where I don't think the rugby intellect is great, but that is also, and importantly, because there's no way that clubs would bother if they didn't have to, it is gonna become more important because budgets are shrinking. So they're, they're, they'll be looking at, at employing possibly a higher level academy coach and getting more players coming through. You'll know a little bit about all the fuss we've had about Saracens uh, for seemingly forever. 
what Saracen's enemies don't like to say is a huge core of that team came through the Saracen's Academy. And yes, they broke rules, but also they have been able to develop a great team and an intelligent team because their academy system is so strong. And we shouldn't forget, look, I mean, I think reality is here, Barnsley, that it was good enough, though, to make it to a Rugby World Cup final last year. And we've spoken yeah. to a number of players and we spoke to Stephen Luatua, who loves playing over in England. He loves the game there. He says he's developed it and he says there is always more than one way to play the game. So we shouldn't forget that as well, mate. It's always great to get your insight. Thank you so much for joining us. We got there in the end, but mate, we look forward to catching up with you once again. And hopefully it's when we've got some rugby, but you stay safe, take care of yourself. And, and hopefully things are going to be looking on the up very, very soon. Thank you. And you, Jeff, John, always great talking to a pair of brilliant broadcasters and glorious wingers. Gosh, and that didn't cost us much, JK. Yeah. yeah. I'll, send you, I'll, send you, I'll send you some wine, Barnsley. Well, while we wait for some good news out of world rugby, we are celebrating the return of Super Rugby. But Bernie, this is not the only thing we are celebrating this week. Absolutely. Jeff, if you look at the calendar, my diary says we should be about round 15 of Super Rugby, but we do, you know, that's close. We do have something to celebrate. Thursday, the 14th of May, we are celebrating 150 years since the first ever competitive game of rugby was played. That's good news, right? 200 people or so gathered in Nelson at the Botanic Reserve to celebrate this game of rugby. It was between Nelson College and the Nelson Football Club. Now, teams were 18 aside. They were made up of 10 forwards, three three-quarters, two fullbacks, and three halfbacks. Three halfbacks. Can you imagine the yap? Uh, no state-of-the-art lycra with four-way stretch, no GPS sensors and mesh cooling vents in the armpits. No, it was good old-fashioned cotton tops and caps for college. The town team, however, they were sporting street clothes, so basically mufti. And the skills are the skills of this very, very early version of our beloved code. They were summed up, let's say, uniquely in a match report in the Commerce newspaper. Now some player runs with the ball and a general scrimmage ensues. It's all about shove, pull, rush and roll about on a confused mess till down is cried. And away the ball goes again till per chance it gets in touch or caught. And it gets even better. How about a weather report and a cheeky scene set? The day was very favourable, being rather cloudy and quite calm. And the field was decorated with a fair sprinkling of ladies and a goodly number of the opposite sex who seemed greatly to enjoy the changeful fortunes of the game. The townies, they won the game 2-0 with the crowd dispersing completely unaware that they had witnessed history, the first ever competitive game of rugby in New Zealand. And it was brought down under by this man, Charles Munro, the son of the then Speaker of Parliament, Sir David Munro. Well, Charles was sent to Christ College in England to complete his schooling, and while there he played a version of football associated with rugby school rules. When he came home, he brought the game with him. 19-year-old Munro was on that winning team that very first match back in 1870, which was reenacted in 2011. Nelson celebrating the very essence of grassroots rugby. This time around, 6,000 people turned up to spectate, including far more than a sprinkling of ladies and goodly number of the opposite sex. That's a relief, though hacking and kicking one's opponent in the shins was not permitted as part of the sequel. From there, unions and formal structures were created, and in 1905, we celebrated our very first official All Blacks team, the originals. How far we've come, how far we have to go, and it's not long before we get another dose of our beloved code. Super Rugby, 13th of June. We're nearly there. Fantastic. Now to catch up with one of our game's greats, Portia Woodman. Well, she was just about ready to get back into it before we hit lockdown level four. Portia, you've had a couple of really major injuries. How are you feeling and how close were you to being back in the thick of the action? 
Yeah, post, you know, pre, um, pre-lockdown, it was really close. I was getting into tra- team trainings or, it, you know, slowly moving into team trainings. And now since being in lockdown, I um, did a PB in the Bronco and that meant that I could then move into team trainings and fully get into it. But I have no team to get in part of, be a part of. So that's a little bit frustrating, but it's a part of sports and it's all the things that we've had to kind of deal with within this lockdown. What's the motivation been for you? What, what has kept that uh, drive there? What has kept you working hard and doing that rehab? Because we know as athletes, rehab's not a lot of fun because it's hard, hard work. What, what's been the driving force behind it for you? I think I look back to 2016 when I broke down on that field. Um, I felt like I hadn't quite given, I didn't give my best in that game and felt like it almost it jeopardised our team's um, opportunities at a gold medal. So that's definitely fired me right up um, over these last four years and even just to extend it out this little bit more. Um, you know, I just don't ever want to feel like that again. And I feel like once I get into this position of being able to play, I'll have my mental state right because once you've gone through a big rehab situation or a big injury like this, you can kind of overcome anything. So, yeah, just feeling like I want to be better than I was in 2016. So you're hungry. You can't wait to get yourself get back out there. Okay, there's the Farah Palmer Cup, the possibility of that. Uh, then obviously the, the Olympics next year and then the Rugby World Cup. Are you available for, for all three? And, and how do you prioritise, you know, the, the different formats? Yeah, I guess ultimately the Olympics is the um, the big the big carried it on out there in front of us. Um, but with you know border border closures and international travel not quite available to us, so I'm probably looking forward to playing a bit of FPC, seeing how that all rolls out with um, the next within the next couple of weeks, um, and then head into Olympics. And if the the chance comes up that I can play in the World Cup next year, then I'll give it a crack. But it all kind of comes down to communicating within the two environments, 15s and 7s, see how they see the the possibility of us switching in. Um, Playing 15s is completely different to 7s. And I know that because, you know, last World Cup, I was still kind of learning how to get my head around 15s and stuff. So um, prob- the possibility of going into a World Cup with no test matches and stuff with the Black Ferns might be a bit of a sticky situation, but I'm, I'm keen to have a crack at both if, they, if the opportunity comes up. A lot of uncertainty uh, surrounding the game. I mean, for you, what, what is it that you hope happens in the short term, in fact, in terms of making sure you continue the great momentum that the women's game has really got now? You know, we're seeing more and more internationals. The Sevens program seems to be expanding. I mean, what's your hope in the short term that we can see so all of a sudden we can appreciate what's happening in, in the female game? I think it would be really awesome that, um, you know, all the women's rugby players can get in and play FPC. How that structure works out, I'm not too sure whether we play the top div or the whole competition. I'm not too sure, but I'd be really keen to see all professional women's players get in there, play it, uh, like make this game, this massive game, you know. Um, most rugby players, they go through the, the, the program or the, the scenario of club FPC or NPC and then into international. So that's where you fall in love with the game. So it'd be awesome just to see the girls pump up these teams, get a really cool competition going, and then we can move forward from there. And hopefully, like you say, it'll bring back the fire within women's rugby and have everyone really supporting it. You may not be able to be at the games, but whether they're there watching on TV would be awesome. Given the financial sort of circumstances, uh, are you a little bit concerned that the women's game might end up going backwards uh, in terms of where things are at right now? Yeah, to be honest, I probably don't have as much to do with that sort of stuff. But I think what we can do as international players within New Zealand is really get this competition growing, um, help the domestic competition as much as we can, and then be along, be there for the process if we get to move into any international travel, any international competition as well. Um, you know, looking forward towards the end of the year, there's also the Black Ferns 15s um, test matches that might be available. Um, and then also into the Sevens Dubai um, competition as well. So I'd like to be a part of those conversations, but at the moment, I'm not too sure. Portia, we know exactly how tight you are as a group, particularly in that Sevens program, but we know as well that Fifteens group, the, the fact that there are professional contracts out there for players now. How is the Sevens group that you've been a part of for a long, long time, how have they stayed connected? Have you stayed connected? And, and are there, have there been conversations, the fact... I suppose, a bit of banter amongst themselves about when you finally do get back together? Yeah, without a doubt. I think we wouldn't be the tight-knit team that we are if we didn't stay connected through these hard times. Um, Mostly, it was quite um, 
team orientated, just seeing how everyone's tracking in, in these uncertain times. You know, these young girls, 18, 19, 20 year olds that have never really experienced this and are kind of sitting in this limbo zone. So just making sure they're okay, but also making sure we've got that banter because that's what we love, right? We're definitely missing this, just the training with each other, the, the competition that you have when you're on the field. I've been lucky enough to train alongside Michaela within our two meters distance and just to kind of test that out because she was training with her partner, Aiden Ross, and we haven't really had a chance to test ourselves against our own teammates. So it was nice to kind of see her again and play and train alongside her. Um, but yeah, I think we're the biggest thing we're looking forward to is just seeing each other and, and the, as the possibility of hugging each other because we're such a cuddly, huggy, hugging whanau. You know, we all cry with each other, laugh with each other. So to be able to hug each other and just get in and, and talk to them face to face will be a huge thing for all of us. Has your, has your skin folds gone up? Give us, give us your best. Hey, give us the you best can't be asking that. What, you, what, you're talking to me? No, yeah, it's which one's gone up? I don't know. <laughs> Mine have gone up. I don't know. I think it's the camera, but um, I think I'm all good. No. Uh, the best meal that I've had. Oh, man. I've, I was lucky enough to have mum and dad at lockdown with us for the full six weeks. And uh, it's been insane. We had, we made a home cook hangi, like an oven hangi. Oh, we just, oh, we had it. boil up, continuous boil ups, pizzas. Yeah, we probably had the skin folds go up a bit, but to be honest, I don't care because <laughs> I'm never going to get this time again with my mum and dad. But those are the good fats. Those are the good fats you're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah, that's the good totally. ones. Yeah. Totally. No, nutritionist, nutritionist There's no takeaways. <laughs> hey, look, it's great to sound, uh, hear, hear your voice because you sound really excited about what's coming up, the prospect of playing a game. We're looking forward to seeing you back out there. And we have no doubts that you're going to be back to your very, very best very soon. Thank you so much for joining us on The Breakdown. Take care. We're in level two. We are not too far Woo! away. We're looking forward to seeing you out in the field. Thanks very much. Cheers, Portia. Awesome. Thanks, guys. We are not too far away, but it still looks as though there's still going to be plenty to happen. But I tell you what, how do we start preparing, guys, for when rugby is going to be back on our screens? Well, I was going to do some contact training, but I don't need it. Um, so I think we've just got to start thinking about actually those little nuances in those games. Mate against mate, that, all that good stuff. Start thinking about it, getting excited. You're sitting at home, you're watching the game, you've got mates around. Is it a bump for beer from Justin Marshall? I want a JK's beautiful wines. Which way are you picking? Which way are you oh, going? Mate, I'm going more classy, man. I'm going to JK because JK is on this show. It's a JK wine. I know he's got a couple of new ones coming out as well. So hopefully they'll turn up in the mail. Hey, JK. Yeah, I'll send it around now, Millsy. Nice work, mate. <laughs> We're giving those away. They're no problem at all. I'll tell you what, I'm going to sit on the fence on this one. I'm waiting to see what Marshy comes up with. I'll tell you what, though. We're looking forward to it. We're excited. But there'll be plenty more to talk about in seven days' time where hopefully going to go inside a couple of the Super Rugby teams, catch up with their coaches. We'll see you in seven days.